Oh, good. Hi, I'm Amy, a compulsive overreader in the hotel liaison. And I get to read. Woo! We would like to ask you... Okay, stop. Okay. Um, when you're filling out the convention evaluation forms that you consider all the hours of hard work and love, 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 the committee chairs have put into organizing this event for you. We ask that you consider the following reading from the big book. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life, unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation, or committee as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Not even small amounts of tofu. Until I could accept my compulsive overeating, I could not stay abstinent. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitude. Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage, all the men and women merely players. He forgot to mention that I was the chief critic. I was always able to f see the flaw in every person, every situation, and I was always glad to point it out because I knew you wanted perfection just as I did. OA and acceptance have taught me that there is a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, that we are all children of God and we each have a right to be here. When I complain about me or about you, I am complaining about God's handiwork. I am saying that I know better than God. When I focus on what's good today, I have a good day. And when I focus on what's bad, I have a bad day. If, if, I, if I focus on a problem, the problem increases. If I focus on the answer, the answer increases. Perhaps the best thing of all for me is to remember that my serenity is inversely proportional to my expectations. The higher my expectations of other people are, the lower is my serenity. I have to discard my rights as well as my expectations by asking myself, how important is it really? How important is it compared to my serenity, my emotional abstinence? And when I place more value on my serenity and abstinence than on anything else, I can maintain them at a higher level, at least for the time being. Please help us out by filling out the convention evaluation forms. They are on the back inside cover of your program. Everyone who fills out an evaluation will receive a free drawing prize ticket, as you know. Um, as soon as all the evaluations are turned in, we will pick three winners. Each person will receive um, a $50, $50 American Express gift check. So, um, and then the drawing is going to be held after the second speaker. And Sherry. I'm Sherry, and I'm a compulsive overeater, and the program's chair, it says here. Thank you. Thank you. The following is a reading from our pamphlet, Together We Can, that was included in your registration packet regarding relapse and service. <clears throat> relapse is one of the primary reasons some of us might be tempted to discontinue our recovery in OA. When we relapse, we may experience the same feelings we had when we first came to an OA meeting. These include shame, embarrassment, 
self-recrimination, failure, depression, isolation, frustration, and even hopelessness. When relapse occurs, the most important action we as individuals and the group can take is to keep the lines of communication open. If someone in the group relapses, we can keep in touch and encourage that member not to retreat into isolation. We can ask how others are doing, letting them know that we care and that their participating in the group is valued. Everyone's attendance at meetings makes a difference in each member's personal recovery and adds to the group as a whole. The courage that it takes to return, even in the face of a setback, will surely be an inspiration to those of us who may in the future face similar obstacles. When a member does return after relapse, welcome him or her warmly. Support and encouragement are especially crucial at this time. And most importantly, don't judge them. When we judge fellow members, we are inviting them to leave. Everyone is good enough to be in OA no matter what, so don't judge another's recovery. Each person's program is unique, just like each of us. It's crucial that in our commitment to carry the message of recovery to other compulsive eaters, we treat others the way we ourselves would want to be treated. Each of us, with a smile, a hug, a phone call, or a hand extended, can make a difference in our own well-being and that of our fellow members, keeping all of us coming back to an atmosphere of love, acceptance, and support. Overeaters Anonymous does work when we keep coming back. We would like to remind you that all speakers share their own experience, strength, and hope. They do not speak for the convention, Region 2, or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. Please remember to silence all cell phones, pagers, or electronic devices now if you haven't done so. <coughs> so our next speaker is uh, someone that I've known for quite a while, and um, I've gotten to do work with her in OA business and um, eaten with her and shared with her and talked with her and uh, gotten to uh, see that she really does walk the walk, doesn't just talk the talk. and. That's why I, she's one of my favorite speakers. So I'd like to welcome Joan Gold. Good morning, everyone. My name is Joan, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I've already uh, cried this morning, so I'm just warning you it will probably continue. Um, I am thoroughly every particle of my being aware of what a privilege it is to be up here. And um, also aware with every particle of my being how hard I worked to be where I am today in my life and be um, open to the privilege and available to the privilege of being here. So um, to start out, for those of you who don't know me, I wanted to uh, give you my basic qualifications for being here. I'll start by saying that my uh, OA birthday, the anniversary of me coming to, to these doors, was November 2nd, 1980. So I'm coming up on 28 years in Overeaters Anonymous, which totally blows my mind. I feel like I've grown up here, and in many ways I have. Uh, my top weight is about 100 pounds more than I am right now. And I also have a bottom weight of about 70 pounds less than I am right now. So I have been on both sides of this disease. And let me tell you, the view from both ends is just as painful and just as um, disheartening and just as dangerous. So 
I also want to say before I really start talking, because once I start talking, it's much faster than this, <laughs> is um, that I'm going to share how it works for me, not how it should work for anyone else. And I want to be really clear about that because um, my, my path has taken, um, uh, has been very circuitous here. And I don't want to scare anyone. And above all, I don't want anyone to walk out of this room thinking that they're doing it wrong. Because I walked out of a lot of meetings in OA over the years thinking that everybody else was doing it right and I was doing it wrong. And I so don't want anyone to get that message from me. This is really my story. This is what it took me to recover in this program, to be in the process of recovering. So um, since nobody told me how I was supposed to do this, I decided that um, since I can't tell 28 years of OA uh, history in 30 minutes, that what I would do was um, start with a list of the most valuable things that it feels like I've learned and unlearned in this program. And then I thought I would spend some time telling you what uh, Together We Can means to me. So. Um, I just made a list. I worked very hard at not writing out my own, my whole share, uh, because I know that God needs a place in this. And, um, and the way it's always worked for me is to just kind of open my heart and let it be there. And that's what I'm going to aim for, even though I can see so many faces that remind me of so many parts of my stories. A lot of my history is here at Region 2 in particular, which is why it's so moving for me to be here because I don't think I would still be in a way if it hadn't been for the part of my, um, my recovery where I came to Region 2 and got fed all the things that I really needed. I um, spent all day in workshops yesterday, and which means I didn't go to but a quarter of or a fifth of the things that were offered here. But of the workshops that I went to, which were marvelous, I noticed one thing that always strikes me is that I didn't hear anybody talk about hunger. And I find that very unusual or very odd in a place like this that nobody would be talking about their hunger. It's something that's been really important to me and I do need to talk about because I came to this program 100 pounds bigger than I am right now, but I was starving to death. I was literally starving to death. I could not get enough food in my body to make that hunger go away or even make it bearable. But what I found here is what actually has fed me over the years. And I knew it the minute I walked in the door, even though, like I said, I had a very circuitous path with lots of relapse. But um, I have been searching for a place where I could be who I am good, bad, and indifferent, where I could experiment with letting my light shine and live the gifts that I was given at birth. And uh, that's what I've gotten here. So I'm sure the topic will come up again in the next 30 minutes. So at the top of my list of the most valuable lessons I've gotten here was that my brain is not a dependable way to run my life. I desperately need the information that is contained in my body and my heart. Ironically, those are the most injured parts of me, my body and my heart. 
or my soul, if you prefer to look at it that way. I believe that working the 12 steps, for me, the end result isn't that I get to have my food look a certain way or my eating look a certain way. It's that I get access back to my body and my soul. The inventories that we are offered the opportunity to do in the 12 steps aren't about making me a good person because I used to be a bad person. They're about giving me access to what my body has to tell me, which I never lived in my body. You know, I was cut off from here, and it wasn't because I carried such terrible, terrible shame about my body, which I did. It was because I could not tolerate any of the feelings that were going on there. I needed to be as absent as possible, because if I wasn't as absent as possible, what happened was I not only felt how horrible it felt to be an obese woman, but I also had to feel the fear of not understanding what was wrong with my life, the anxiety of not knowing how to stay or keep myself safe, uh, just a lot of very intense feelings, which I, I didn't have access to. And ironically, you know, that's what, like, the latter third of my recovery program has been about, is about daring to start exploring what's going on in my body. And it took me many, many years of being at what you might call a normal weight before I could even get there. I still practice many, many ways of keeping my body dead to me because it's way too frightening to live there. To know it's in my heart and soul, I was not raised to believe I had a heart and soul. I was raised to believe that, um, that, that I was uh, a physical appearance. I had a mother who was in show business, and um, the most important thing about me was that I looked like a Barbie doll and that uh, I performed well. It didn't matter what I felt. It mattered that... Um, It mattered that I was able to make other people believe that I was an okay human being and that I belonged on the planet. I had to earn my right to be here every day. So um, that's number one on my list. Number two on my list, I wrote in really big letters, compassion, 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 compassion. The most important thing I can do for myself or for the people around me is to offer them compassion. I was raised to believe that criticism was love, that if you loved people, you told them how to improve themselves, and if you loved yourself, you relentlessly worked on self-improvement. It took, well, it took a very long and painful relapse in OA, first of all, to teach me that <clears throat> criticism doesn't work as a way of life. All it does is it keeps you, um, well, it kept me feeling suicidal and depressed. I mean, there wasn't anything except criticism. I didn't get approval when I did achieve whatever I was being criticized for. There was just another level of criticism. I suppose that's the uh, long-term trap of perfectionism, is that if perfectionism is your goal, you never get there. It's, it's a self-defeating uh, way of life. You can never be perfect enough. It's like there's never enough food. There's never enough perfection. There's never a place where you get to say, oh, I'm here. 
I am here now, and it's because um, because of compassion, 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 compassion. I have to forgive myself for every mistake, um, which leads me to the next item on my list, which is that I am entitled to make mistakes. In fact, I now believe that I'm obligated to make mistakes. <laughs> if I'm not making mistakes, I have not learned anything. I'm not growing as a human being, and I'm not achieving what I believe is my purpose in life. Uh, right side by side, and this is the part that I think I worry about frightening people, um, I believe that uh, relapse is my greatest teacher. My disease of compulsive overeating is my greatest teacher. I no longer, it's been at least a decade and a half since I've had to eat compulsively. Uh, I don't have an abstinence date. And um, that's another thing about me that uh, I worry about the impact on people. I didn't choose my path. I got to tell you that, number one. I chose to stay in Overeaters Anonymous, but I did not choose my recovery. My recovery chose me. And that recovery is, I don't, I, I know when I came into the program and I celebrate that birthday date, but I don't have a clue as to when I became what anybody might think of as abstinent. Actually, I was so... Um, uh, injured by my first few years experience in OA with a very rigid definition of abstinence. And you know, there were other people that didn't have rigid definitions, but I was raised with rigidity, so that's what I walked into here. That's what I called towards me. And um, after I went, I, I did it perfectly for three years. I forgot this part of my story. I did it perfectly for three years here. I lost 100 pounds. I was speaking everywhere. Everybody thought I had, they, I had what they wanted. And it turned out what I had was a really nice body because when you're 28 or 29, it all pops back pretty quickly. <laughs> and, um, and I was clueless, but, you know, I was still practicing that look good thing. And so, you know, it felt good to have people admire me. I'd waited my entire life to feel that people admired me, but I knew that I was peddling as fast as I could just to keep my head above water and that any minute I was going to sink. And I did because there wasn't any basis for my physical recovery at that time, none. Um, and I knew that and I still couldn't figure out what to do because I was too frozen by fear and I was too, I was so terrified of making a mistake. You know, I earned my way into being part of OA by being a really good girl the first few years I got here. And I know that this is not uncommon experience. There is nothing wrong with being a good girl. However, if, it's, um, if you have to be good all the time because if you're not, you know you're going to uh, hell, then um, it's time limited. I mean, I was just a, a ticking bomb waiting to go off, and I knew that, and eventually I did. I did it by eating a carrot in the middle of the night, and the sponsor I chose, okay, the sponsor I chose told me I had to go back to my meetings, introduce myself as a newcomer, and not speak for 30 days. So um, I, I encountered a lot, of what, um, a lot of what we did back then in those days, which was shaming each other for having problems as compulsive overeaters which even at the time, even if in my shamed, crazed state, I recognized there was kind of an inherent flaw there in the program, that we're all powerless, we're all compulsive overeaters, but yet we would exclude each other or punish each other or shame each other because we couldn't stop eating. So um, 
So this is my story of relapse and recovery. It took me um, a little over three years to uh, coming to meetings constantly, uh, being in the rooms, of doing what service I was allowed to do because I was also in those days cut off from doing very much service. Um, it took me a little over three years to stop the constant, um, uh, the, the really self-destructive eating, the eating that felt like a rape. I don't know how else to describe it, but, you know, I was one of those eaters that I couldn't shove it in fast enough. I couldn't shove it in fast enough. I couldn't find enough places in my body to shove it in. It was, that was the kind of eating I had to do. Um, I'm cross-addicted. I have many different substances that I use. Food is obviously and forever my, um, my first choice. Uh, I did everything. I couldn't, after, after that many years in OA, I couldn't get myself unconscious anymore. So it was doubly frightening because I couldn't put myself out. And there was still a part of me that had hooked into the program. Um, somewhere in that time, I had a dear, dear friend who was here yesterday, isn't here this morning, a bunch of us in San Francisco started uh, relapsing at the same time. We called ourselves the class of 1980. We all hit the bottom at about the same time. And um, she started a secret relapsers meeting in San Francisco. It had to be a secret because um, it had to be a secret. Nobody in those days talked about relapse. Nobody admitted that it happened. You kind of vaguely talked about the people who were gone. Thank you very much. And, um, but uh, there was nothing to do about relapse in OA, so we started a secret relapsers meeting. Out of that, we hooked into what turned out to be a national movement at the time called 12 Step Within. Um, 12 Step Within is about carrying the message to those who are still suffering within the program. A lot of our, all of our effort was going to bringing new people into OA but there were a lot of people sitting in corners, myself included, who were dying right here in the meetings. So we started meetings where you could talk about relapse. And for anyone who is interested in this for their area, because um, it's less underground now, World Service publishes a manual that will show you how to start 12-step within meetings, how to have a 12-step within retreat. We did everything, and through that process, of advocating for the rights of people with NOA who were having problems with food, being able to fully participate in the program, because at that time, we, I was told, you can't work the steps, you can't have a spot. I mean, it was just, it's laughable to me now. But I used to say, you know, low self-esteem would have been an improvement for me. I had no self. I was a person who came into OA with no self. Other people I see come into OA, they have jobs, maybe they're not happy with it, but they have a job. They have relationships, maybe they're not happy with it, but they have a relationship. I had nothing when I came into OA at 28. I'd never been in a relationship. I was unemployed. I was 100 pounds overweight. I couldn't tell you if it was raining or sunny out. I had gotten so distrustful of my perception of the world, I couldn't answer yes or no to a question. And that's the condition I came in. So um, through the advocacy I was able to do in 12-step within for all my dear, dear friends who I saw were working as hard as they could and couldn't stop eating, who I know knew 
weren't bad people. I mean, I could have had doubts about myself and often did, but I knew these other people were wonderful people who were putting their whole heart into this program. Through my advocacy for them, somewhere along the line, I got what you might call abstinence. I don't use that word anymore because it still has too many harsh connotations. I had a lovely sponsor who gave me permission to use the word sobriety. So somewhere in that, somewhere in those years, I attained sobriety. And what that means for me is my hunger for huge amounts of food is gone. I can get my hunger fed other ways. Again, you know, I didn't choose this path. I'm a person that likes security. I have a list to make sure I don't forget any important points. You know, so I would have loved to have been able to write my food down every day. I would have loved that. God had other plans for me. I had to find a way to stop being a failure every single day. So I let go and decided that if there is a God, that I was going to have to rely on that to get the physical part of this program. And um, it makes me really, really pleased that I can, um, what's the word, that I can bear testimony to the fact that there is a higher power, and a higher power can take away your eating disorder or give you a way to live with it that is peaceful, that is not about fear, that's not about shame, that's not about restriction, that's not about have to, that's not about don't you dare, that's not about you fucked up. And that's what I've got today. Um, and even, And that's why even though this scares me to death, I'm willing to talk about it up here where people who need to hear about it can hear. And that's actually why I have the list, not to make myself look good, but because I have found things in this program that I want people to know can be found here. If you stick it out, if you allow your relapse or your struggle with food not to send you out the door in shame, but if you keep asking questions and keep talking about it and keep seeking whatever it is that you need to um, to deal with your hunger. So I stopped it. I am entitled to make mistakes. Um, something else I found out in my years here is that the bigger my life, the smaller my person. I thought that I could um, live my life on the basis of fear. You know, all that criticism that I was raised with, it taught me to live life from a perspective of fear. But fear does not promote healing. Fear keeps my life really, really small. And um, somehow I noticed a correlation between how small my life was and how big my body was. And what has happened over the years is I have this phenomenal life. It might not look like much to other people, but remember, I started out with zip. So um, I have this life today. I went back to school and got myself a degree in something that is deeply meaningful to me instead of just having a job. Now, mind you, all of this is in my 40s and 50s, so, like, don't get so excited that you think I'm, like, some special person. I went back to school at 49. I got married at 47. I bought a house at 46 with my husband. I have this, like, amazing life, and what it says to me is, is that I get to be part of the human race. I came here, and I didn't know that. I thought there was something so essentially broken in me that the best I could ever expect from life 
was to be successful on my diet and be able to pass visually for normal. Having a conversation with me was another story, but visually being able to pass for normal. Um, number six on the list, I put the hunger is real. I think I already touched on that. The hunger is real. I spent a lifetime on other people's advice trying to talk myself out of feeling hungry. You don't really feel hungry. This is not real hunger. This is emotional hunger. I'm sorry. It felt like I was going down for the third and final time. That hunger was real. The problem was the only thing I was allowed to be hungry for when I grew up was food. I was not allowed to be hungry for love. I was not allowed to be hungry to be seen. I was not allowed to be hungry for self-expression. I was not allowed to be hungry for being a human being, for creativity, for passion. I was not allowed any of that hunger. I was allowed to be hungry for food. In my family, that was the only acceptable thing. So I had to work from that basis. It didn't work for me to try and talk myself out of being hungry. All that did was promote the binge behavior in me. Um, what works for me today around food, like I said, is trusting God. I eat three meals a day. I eat snacks when I have to. I eat consciously. I stop when I'm full. Sometimes it's easier than others to stop when I'm full. I'm a person that asks for a lot of help. I still make phone calls. I still talk to people. I was sitting there crying in my chair because people saw that I was nervous because I was telling them I'm scared, and they told me they loved me. So that's what I get. I get to never have to do anything scary alone again. That's what I was promised by someone who I am still in touch with in program from 28 years ago. I never have to do anything scary by myself again. That's how I eat consciously and stop when I'm full. I do not do this through my own will. I am so clear that it is not my own will at work here. What I got to use my will for was um, helping to differentiate between um, what I had been told was bad and what I had been told was good. It turns out my family, not surprisingly, got a lot of that screwed up, and they passed it along to me. And it's a good thing I didn't get what I wished for the first time I worked the steps because I would have wished away three-quarters of who I am today because I was told that was bad and that was wrong. So um, this is what I learned doing service at Region 2. I learned that you can grow up without self-esteem and you can create it here in OA. I learned, I learned what it is to feel useful. I learned what it is to be part of something bigger than me, to make something huge and magical happen, and to know that I was a part of making something huge and magical happen. I also learned so painfully how to make mistakes and how to be forgiven by other people and how to forgive myself and then to turn around and forgive other people for making mistakes. I was a very intolerant person. We spent a lot of time in Region 2 committees and on the board crying and hating each other and crying and loving each other. And you know what? I had never had any life experience doing that. In my family, first of all, we didn't make mistakes. And second of all, if somebody should be so stupid as to make a mistake, we did not forgive each other. I didn't talk to my father for the last 15 years of his life. 
And I don't say that with pride. I say that's how I was raised in my family. When somebody makes a mistake, you do not forgive them. And if I was going to live any kind of life at all, I had to unlearn that. And I learned that doing service at Region 2. I was um, on the board for four years after being a delegate for four years, and then I also worked at World Service. World Service was harder for me because of my self-esteem issues and because everybody looked so glamorous to me there. Region 2, for some reason, had my heart. I could be here at Region 2, not because you were less glamorous, <laughs> but just somehow... Uh, from the first time a friend dragged me in here and I sat at a business meeting, I, it, I just came alive. It was electric to me. I don't know, but I've learned through my recovery to pay attention when I feel electrified by something and to seek out that place or that person or that thing when I feel that electrified feeling. That's what got me into school. This is what I learned about Together We Can. I feel like the purpose of my disease is about connection. The purpose of my disease is to force me to connect to other people and ask for help because it was very clear for me, you know, both ends of that spectrum, my disease was going to kill me. I was down so thin that I was growing fur on my body. I was having fights with my doctor because she wanted me to add one tablespoon of oil a day to my food plan, and I refused. I couldn't do it. I didn't refuse because intellectually I thought it was a bad idea. I couldn't do it. I was going to die. I had, thank you. I had a very good friend and a wonderful sweet woman who entered OA in 1980 when I did, and the time I hit my relapse, she stopped eating, and died a year later at 69 pounds. She was my height. She died at 69 pounds. Thank God I started relapsing. It bought me more time. It bought me more time. I could have died very easily. Um, the connection. The connection that I've gotten here, again, Region 2 above all places, but also in my home meetings, one of the things I had to do after my relapse is I had to start taking myself to the meetings where I actually got fed and not going to the meetings where I wound up walking out feeling worse about myself than I felt when I walked in. So I had to start getting really, really clear. Nice people, good people. I have no judgment about what works for you, but I can't hear about, um, I can't hear about starving myself, number one, because it doesn't work for me. I'm severely anorexic. You wouldn't have thought of that seeing the way I've lived my life, which is mostly as an obese woman, but um, I do have that. What else do I want to say in my remaining three minutes? Um, you know, I don't have a big book with me. I'm not a person that carries that around. Uh, I have stuff I've memorized over the years. I use that all the time. I do the third step prayer at my work every day. It's the only way I can be who I am. Um, but what's really important to me is um, the reading we read at my home meeting. And I tried to scribble it down before we started, but I was too jumpy and nervous, so I know I've left part of it out, but it's what's often called the hidden promises. 
and I love them. We had a 12-step within retreat that we did yearly for a long, long time. And we, somebody brought this to the retreat. And, you know, I've read the big book a million times, and I never picked up on this because, you know, my, my rigid mind picked up on the stuff that fit in with the stuff I had been brought up in with my family. But um, as best I can remember, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I'll try and bear it, um, it says, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even food. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in compulsive overeating. If tempted, we react as from a hot flame. There's a line in there I'm forgetting. And then, and then it says, somebody have it? Flame. Yes, I got that one. And then there's another line. And then it says, we are not cocky, nor are we afraid. We feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality safe and secure. We have not even sworn off. Two lines. Instead, the problem has been removed. That is how we react so long as we stay in fit spiritual condition. I apologize for butchering that reading. It's much more lovely if you read it in the book. Thank you for allowing me to be here and um, allowing me to have a life. I'm Shirley, a real recovering compulsive overeater. Um, <clears throat> it just so happens that this particular reading from Voices of Recovery um, was um, one of the um, writings that my higher power inspired me to write. Um, the quote actually comes from For Today on page 354, which is one of my um, favorite readings. Believe that you can be abstinent, you will be. Believe that you can have sanity, peace of mind, freedom to live the life you want. You will have them. Believe that you will recover, you will. Believing in something seems impossible requires a leap of faith. The gift of abstinence freedom from compulsive overeating, the peace and sanity which result from working the program seem like elusive dreams to the newcomer or the relapser. Faith requires that I keep doing what works, no matter what. Sometimes it takes days, weeks, months, or even years before I can see and feel like I have gotten it. And when I do get it, I don't get to keep it because the it keeps changing. The hope and belief that things will get better is not a tangible commodity that I buy. It is something I must earn. I believe it is possible for everyone to be absent, to recover, and to have our dreams come true. We get what we expect. 
So we so expect a miracle. We are all miracles. And it is my great honor and privilege to introduce our other um, closing speaker. Um, when I first met him, I was at the Region 2 Assembly, and uh, I don't know, he was our Region 2 trustee, but, you know, he was running around in his jeans, you know, showing off his skinny butt. Um, I've also seen him uh, serve in other capacities as the general service trustee. He later became uh, the chairman of the board of trustees, and then he was the region two chair. Um, he's done a lot of great service for OA, and um, so let's get him up here. Michael L. Hi, my name is Michael Lawn, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Uh, I want to thank Joan. Joan, where are you? Oh, thank you, Joan. I uh, I had the privilege of serving with Joan on the uh, on in Region Two, and um, it's a privilege to be sharing a podium with you um, this morning. It's really a privilege to be asked anywhere. Uh, before coming into OA. I wasn't somebody that you would ever want to ask back. Um, it's been a, a great, great convention, and I'm so reminded of this is one of the reasons not only that I love an OA meeting, but I love an OA convention, because it gives me back perspective. It's something that I easily lose. I, I've lost perspective when I get into self-pity, self-doubt, fear. Like when I think, you know, 22 years in the program, and all of a sudden, five minutes before I stand up, I've got nothing to say. I have nothing to share. That's self-centered fear, you know. And I love this title, Together We Can. Um, I did come into the program in 1986, March of 1986. My abstinent date, um, I do have one. Um, it's June 5th, 1986. So this year I celebrated 22 years of abstinence and about a 110-pound weight loss. And together, we were able to do that. And when I say we, me and a sponsor, me and a fellow recovering compulsive overeater in a meeting, and me and a higher power of some days of my understanding and some days not of my understanding. This together we can, you know, I've been thinking a lot this weekend, and that's kind of nice because most of the time I'm not, most of the time before coming into the program, and even some in my early years in the program, I really wasn't present. I know when I was compulsively overeating, I wasn't present. Very early on in life, I think I put everybody into two categories. There was me and there was them. This idea of a we, uh, there was no we. It was me and it was them. 
whether those them were my family, those them were the athletic people in school, the people who always got picked first on the team, the people who seemed to eat one of something and, and could stop, uh, the smart people, the, the attractive people, the popular people, the soft people, the people who didn't seem to speak at one volume, which was loud, which was nine. Um, and I think that was one of the most attractive things when I first came into OA, that there was this we. I, I never knew. I really never knew, even though I got up to almost, I got up to over 270 pounds by the time I was 18 years old. I never really thought or realized there were other people who did the things I did, who ate the things I ate, and who thought the way I thought. That if you ate a half a pumpkin pie, you would have to go to the Safeway market and buy another full pie and eat the other half a pie so you could replace the second pie with the one that you took. And I heard in Overeaters Anonymous that we did do that. That I would go and get a binge food and eat half of it to where I was stuffed and full and say, I'm never going to eat this again, ever. And go downstairs and throw it in the dumpster and say, I'm never eating that again. That's the last time I'm ever going to eat that. And then go back upstairs and then one hour, 90 minutes later, find myself walking down to the dumpster in my pajamas, getting out a broom so that I could fish the food out of the dumpster, taking it back up to my room so that I could eat it. 90 minutes after I said I would never eat it again, that we did do that. I never knew that people did. And so there was a great comfort in that we. Many people talk about yo-yoing in, the, in their compulsive overeating life. They would go up, they would go down, they would go up, and they would go down. For the first 18 years of my life, I just yoed. <laughs> it, it, it really does amaze me when people get up here and they talk so eloquently and so specifically about how they felt when they were growing up. I didn't feel shit. I just ate. I heard once that a, the definition of a real compulsive overeater is somebody who eats because they've got to, just to get from point A to point B. And it just seemed like to get from the sixth grade to graduating from high school, I had to eat. And so I just kept eating. I coined the little phrase, I kept getting older, but I never grew up. I never really lived a life. A lot of times people will say, what's your OA birthday? And um, very early on in the program I heard, you know what, Michael, it's really a rebirth day. Because for me, I got to be reborn. I got a new life. It's not like I, I had anything before I came in. I, won, I loved what Joan said. Um, I, I never really wanted to kill myself, but I was waiting around for it all to be over because it just didn't seem like there was any reason to stick around. My life was all about eating or not eating or getting the food or staying away from the food 
or swearing that I would swear off forever and then going back on it and beating myself up again. And somehow or other, I was at 160 and six years later, I was at 270. And I was writing down this, uh, and I did that all on my own. That's me. Me and them, the other people that didn't obviously do that. I thought about I was gaining 20 pounds a year. By the time I was 18, I was 270. And um, I calculated if I had continued to gain 20 pounds, I'd be 790 pounds now. And I realize now that we can and have done that. That there are people that are 790 pounds. And some of them are in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, but most of them aren't because they can't even fit out the door. I was a borderline agoraphobic for many years. I just, life terrified me. I spent many, 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 many hours, days in my room. There was me and there was them, the rest of the world. And at some point I did get scared. I know for me, this word fear is the, is the thing that motivates me the most. And it's the thing that seems to touch every aspect of my life. It says that in the literature. This small world, the small word somehow touches every aspect of our life. I know when I'm judging somebody, I'm afraid. I'm sure I would like to believe that when I've heard stories all this weekend about people who were shameful of other people in the beginning, they were afraid. They had this precious gift called abstinence, and they were so terrified that it could be taken away so easily that they had to hold on to that. And they didn't have any tools yet that, that you know, relapse is not contagious, that together we can recover. I know now that my abstinence is a gift, and I know that it's a precious gift. In fact, for me, it's the most precious thing I own. And it's not something for me that I had to get it's not something that I have to find. When people say, well, I, I, I haven't gotten abstinence yet. And I totally support that. And I found for me that every time I come to an OA meeting and I'm not eating, that I'm given the gift of abstinence. I always thought abstinence had to start on Monday morning when I woke up. But... Right now, unless somebody's eating a Snickers bar in the back of the room, the gift of abstinence is available to me. My abstinence can start at 11 a.m. on June 29, 2008, and I can go out from here to do your bidding, God's bidding. Um, it talks about it in the literature. Um, so for me, it was more about keeping the precious gift rather than getting it or finding it. And I eventually did find my way into Overeaters Anonymous after several vain attempts to try to lose weight. It was all about losing weight. It was all about control. I am finding out now in my 22nd year of abstinence how very, very, very controlling I am. And what's nice is control and management can be very useful in many 
avenue, avenues of, your, of my life. I'm in the theater profession, and I'm a director, and I'm a manager. And when you're directing a production, being in control and managing the production is actually a really good thing. Somebody's got to do it, you know. Um, and, um, but when I'm trying to control my everyday life or control, uh, you know, even my roommate this weekend and go, okay, well, now we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to take our stuff down to the room, and then we're going to, you know. Um, what's nice is I'm becoming so present that I'm actually able to see it now. I can tell you very much, for the first five years of abstinence in the program, looking back, it really was kind of a picnic. It was. I was abstinent. I was losing weight. I was writing my four-step inventory. I was cleaning up the wreckage of my past. Um, I was going to meetings. You know, there was the joy of losing weight, you know, uh, on a regular basis, meeting new friends. Together we can do this. Together we can do that. Starting new meetings. Learning about there was this whole world of compulsive overeaters who were recovering together. It really was kind of a, a honeymoon. I didn't have to really deal with that much of my, what God's will was for me. I had too much rotten past to have to clean up. Um, I do think life is pretty scary. Uh, I was talking with somebody this morning. I love my bed. I love being under the covers. Uh... Today, this morning, we actually read On Awakening, uh, and we read it together in the room. Together, we can do that. Um, I've had three great sponsors in the program. And you know what? If you're lucky enough to stay in the program for 22 years, you'll probably have more than one sponsor. Um, one of my first, my first sponsors used to say, oh, Michael, you're one of the lucky compulsive overeaters. You've actually stayed in the program long enough to have more than one sponsor. Or you're one of the lucky compulsive overeaters. You actually have a car. You know, when I would complain about, oh, I've got to take my car out for maintenance, or I gotta, my car broke down, or I have a flat tire. Well, you're one of the lucky compulsive overeaters. You actually have a car. You know, um, always, again, losing that perspective. My first sponsor did really show me a great deal of what this program for living in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was all about. I really didn't know how to deal with life. I find even today, when I want to eat, I want to be temporarily distracted from my life. In the beginning, I wanted to be distracted from my life for six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eighteen years. But even today, I know I want to be distracted. That's why I loved compulsive overeating so much. It made me not have to think or take responsibility for something for a while. And that's why I guess I kept eating, because I get to keep not being responsible. Um, I spoke with my first sponsor. Is this the truth? It is. Um, because I always... The truth, if I lie, it's not because I'm a liar. It's because I'm afraid the truth isn't enough. That's what I love about finding the exact nature of my wrong. Thank you, Joan. I thought I was an awful person. I thought I was a bad person. I've really come to find out in a way I'm just afraid. I'm just 
afraid. So I spoke with my first sponsor about about two weeks ago. He's living in Florida. He is, is there any value in saying this? Well, it does say in the literature, we do talk about each other a great deal, but we most always temper it with a spirit of love and understanding. And my first sponsor is about 600 pounds right now, and um, he's back at meetings. He's got a sponsor, and um, always, always been challenging for him. But he taught me a, a great deal about the program, and he also taught me that, Michael, the people of Overeaters Anonymous will probably, occasionally, inevitably let you down. But the program of Overeaters Anonymous will never let you down. And the gateway to getting the program is that together we can find the solution. But if you put your, if you put your faith in me as a sponsor, there will be the day when I will let you down. So he never gave me a fish. He taught me how to fish. And as it turned out, he went away from the program. My second sponsor, who I had for about nine months or a year, taught me that I think long-term recovery was possible and that there was a workable method by which I could abstain and that moderate kneeling was, was attainable and possible and that there was life after my first sponsor. I have a third sponsor now. I've had her for so long that I can't even remember how long it's been now. And it's probably been the richest and the greatest experience that I've had in OA. We've become co-sponsors now. I think she had a couple of sponsors. I hope I can say this. And they all died on her. She said, Michael, you're my co-sponsor now. So, because hopefully I won't have to bury you. Um, and um, I, honestly, my life is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more expansive and more glorious and more exciting. And, of course, it's also getting more scary. And I'm one of the lucky compulsive overeaters that I'm here long enough that my life can continue to get bigger and more expansive and more glorious and more scary. And that means that I am now required to become closer to God. If I want my life to continue to get expansive and find out what my will is, what God's will is for me, I'm going to have to get closer to God, which was a thing that I was not interested in doing when I came into OA. Um, I was adopted and I think I carried for a long, long time the idea that there was something wrong with me. My real parents gave me up because, I, you know, what do you do with rotten meat? You throw it out. What do you do with something that's bad? You reject it. And um, it took me a long time and a lot of different inventories to get over that. Um, I actually tried to... Is there value in saying this on tape? Um, I actually tried to kill my cat. Uh, I love cats now. I take care of other people's animals. 
Um, I, I, people do entrust me with their, with their, with their animals, and that's a wonderful uh, gift of the program. But in my disease, in my disease of wanting to control, and in my disease of wanting life to be the way that I wanted it to be, I got this little cat that somebody gave me, and in the beginning, um, I, I comforted it and I fed it, and then eventually it just wouldn't do what I wanted it to do. So I wanted it to go away. So I tried to kill it. That was kind of my solution for life. <laughs> if you didn't do what I wanted you to do, die. So then I don't have to deal with you anymore. But then, of course, your father does die and you feel really guilty. Or your mother does die and you feel really guilty. Or you do try to kill your cat, which didn't die, but you feel guilty. And I eventually gave this cat away. But for many years coming into the program, I felt so badly about um, having done this. And, you know, nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Well, what could possibly have been the value of me trying to kill this cat? And there's a great line in the literature. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we placed ourselves in God's hands were far better than anything we could have planned. And I love it. It doesn't say anything we could have dreamed. It says anything we could have planned. So for somebody who likes to control, something planned. So I did this inventory about trying to kill my cat. And I realized somebody gave me a little precious thing that I was clearly not able to take care of. And rather than saying, you know what, I'm going to give this little cat to someone else whom I think will be better able to take care of it, I took it anyways. Maybe my real parents were smarter than me. They knew that they were not going to be capable of taking care with, of me, so I'm going to give you to somebody else who I think will. That I am capable of being loved, that I am... Um, valued in being loved, that I am, what's the word? I can't think of it. Um, I don't have to do anything in order to be receiving love. That I just get it because I'm here. That I, I don't have to earn it. I'm not a bad person. I don't have to be worthy. There's the word that I'm, I'm worthy of it just because I'm here. You know, I have to say now, as, I, as I'm very present looking, Joan was so eloquent. And, you know, of course, we're not supposed to compare, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have to trust that whatever I'm going to say is what I'm going to, going to say and that it's what I'm supposed to say because I did ask my higher power to help guide my, my thinking to help guide my, my talk, um, and that it isn't really about me. I guess I just got that. That it's about together we can come together. And it's nice for me to be reminded that both Joan and I are just one aspect of this weekend. We used to be, oh, you're the speaker, you're the speaker, you know. And my first sponsor used to say, yeah, but there's a greeter at the, at the convention too. And their, their um, contribution to the convention is just as important as yours. You're all together, and together we can put on a great convention, whether you're a greeter, a speaker, a timer, or just the participant listening.
I now have, um, is there any value in saying this? I don't know. I'm one of the lucky compulsive overeaters. I actually have had three mothers. I have my birth mother, who I've never met yet. I have my adopted mother, who died. And for some crazy reason, <laughs> as my co-sponsor and I, I hope this is okay to talk about, there's a great line in the literature that says, never fear needed change. When, Michael? Never. Never fear needed change. And I don't necessarily like change because it means I'm afraid I may lose something I've already got. And a couple months ago, my co-sponsor, who I've always called my pseudo-mom, I've even in, on um, forms when it says in case of emergency, please contact. I would put this person's name and put relation, mother. And a couple of months ago, this person and her husband said, Michael, we'd like to officially, legally adopt you as our son. And I said I'd have to think about it. <laughs> Which didn't go over real well. (laughs) But one of the things I've learned in Overeaters Anonymous is that I get to, like the literature says, in thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought, or a decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. And I've learned that I don't have to necessarily come up with the answer immediately. I have had too many painful experiences where I've gone, okay. Or, yeah, sure. And where it was clearly a mistake because I wasn't listening to the still, small voice inside. I wasn't present for the still, small voice inside. My co-sponsor now has been so integral in helping me find the channel to the still, small voice within. And I've got one. I I never knew it was there, but it's absolutely there. And as I'm now finding out more about my life, I want to know more. I want to know more. I heard in the the, uh, rooms today when people are like, when you just can't go to another meeting, or you just can't do any more writing, or you just can't do this, And I'm like, a lot of times now, it doesn't feel like a chore to me. It's like, it's like I want it in the same way that I wouldn't deny myself air or water or food. I want to be nourished. I want to feed that hunger in that way. I have to admit, this whole weekend there hasn't been an issue with food really at all. Except the funny little tofu cubes on the salmon or whatever it was. (laughs) But you know what? I could just take them off. I didn't have to eat them or freak out or anything. You just take them off. But um, I think it was two weeks ago, we went down to the Sacramento County Courthouse, and I was uh, legally adopted as, um, as the middle son of... And what an honor and a privilege it is to be a part of that family. And almost more importantly, what an honor and a privilege it is to be asked that they'd actually want me. And I'll even say it out loud, 
today, subject to change at any moment, I think I will be a beneficial, useful member of their society, of their family. Together we can actually, we'll be a better family together. But it's honestly, what I don't want to talk about is, it scares me because it's all new and it's more expansive. Two years ago, I got the opportunity thrown in front of me, never fear, need a change. Michael, how would you like to come up to the Sacramento Theater Company and basically run the theater up there? Okay, well, I've lived in Southern California my entire life. I've never lived anywhere else. And now the idea is to sell everything, leave everybody I know, and go up to Sacramento and run a theater, which I know is probably God's will for me. That's the scary thing about if you stay around long enough, if if you're like me, you end up knowing what God's will is, and then you kind of go, oh, shoot. (laughs) Shoot. Now that I'm present, now that I have my connection to my still small voice, I have to listen to it. (laughs) And then I thought of that never fear needed change. When, Michael? Never. And it was clear to me that this is what I needed to do to expand my life. And so that's exactly what I did. And it's been a great, great move. And my life has just been getting more and more expansive. I don't know if that word makes any sense, but for somebody who wants to control and wanted everything on a plate and and went through life very compartmentalized, I feel like I was on a little boat in a little stream all by myself, me, going down the river. And all of a sudden, I boomed into all these other boats, and they were a whole bunch of other compulsive overeaters. And they were like, you know what? We're going on these journeys together. Do you want to join us? Because together, we'll be able to rage the storms much better than you in your tiny little boat. And so I see this big horizon. I see the big rivers. I see the rivers coming into the oceans and the oceans coming over. And I'm like, wow, it's a little scary, but okay, together I guess we can do that. And, um, and so I grab onto the, their boats and they grab onto mine. And, and sometimes I have to help paddle them, their boat, and sometimes they have to help paddle mine. And sometimes we just get to smooth sail and we get to see the sun and we go, oh, there's a God and it's beautiful and it's glorious. And then other days it's rainy and it's stormy and there's been so many fires that you can't even see the sun. And you get to say, there's a God and life is glorious and life is wonderful. I've always found that's when you really know you're on the program of recovery. When you don't have a new job, you don't have a brand new car, you don't have a brand new relationship, you haven't just lost another 10 pounds, and you're not compulsively overeating, and you feel contentment. It talks about in the literature um, about this word, a contented, useful life. And I never knew what that was. I always thought that was the new car, the the lower waist size, whatever it is. And um, I'm really finding now in my 22nd year um, what I think a contented, useful life is. The only other thing I can think of to say is I'm so delighted that I got to still be around that I didn't miss the life that I think God has in store for me and that I know I've just touched the iceberg of. 
And one of the greatest compliments that you can give me in the program of Overeaters Anonymous is if you see me again and you say, Michael, it's great to see you, and I always hear something different from you. I sure hope so. Because if you don't, it means that I'm resting on my laurels and I'm not growing. And I've learned if you don't grow, you go. And if you're coasting, you're probably going downhill. So um, I'm so delightful to be on this path that together we can continue to find out what God's will is for us and um, that I have every intention of sticking around until my last breath. So thanks for having me.